Section 24 of The Wit and Humor of America, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. A Night in a Rocking Chair by Kate Field. It may be true that America is going to perdition, that all Americans are rascals, that there are no American gentlemen, that culture, refinement, and social manners can only be found in the old world. But if it be true, what an extraordinary anomaly it is that women, old and young, ugly and handsome, can travel alone from one end of this great country to the other, receiving only such attention as is acceptable. Having journeyed up and down the land to the extent of 20,000 miles, I am persuaded that a woman can go anywhere and do anything, provided she conducts herself properly. Of course, it would be absurd to deny that it is not infinitely more agreeable to be accompanied by the tyrant called man but when there is no tyrant to come to a lovely woman's rescue, it is astounding how well lovely women can rescue herself. If she exerts the brains and muscle given her thousands of years ago, and not entirely annihilated by long disuse, I have been nowhere that I have not been treated with greater consideration than if I had belonged to the other sex. There is not a country in Europe of which this can be said. And if a nation's civilization is gauged, as the wise declare, by its treatment of women, then America, rough as it may be, badly dressed as it is, tobacco-chewing as it often is, stands head and shoulders and heart above all the rest of the world. The French woman was right in declaring America to be la paradis de dames, and those women who exalt European gallantry above American honesty are as blind to their own interests as an owl at high noon. There is no royal railroad to lecturing. At best it is hard work. But lecture committees do their possible, as the Italians say, to lessen the weight. And that possible is hardly appreciated by such of us as inwardly long for a natural bridge between stations and hotels. A woman is never so forlorn as when getting out of a car or entering a strange hotel. However, there never was a rule without its exception, and though courtesy has marked the majority of lecture committees for its own, a lecturer may occasionally find himself stranded upon a desert of indifference and languish for the comforts of a home not twenty miles distant. Thus it happened that once upon arriving at my destination, when the shades of evening were falling fast and glancing about the customary smiling gentleman who smoothed out the rough places by carrying bags and taking care of the transport of luggage and driving you to the abiding place in the best carriage of the period, I found no gentleman smiling or otherwise to deliver me from my own ignorance. Carriage, ma'am, screamed the driver in top boots ornated with a gross tracery of mud. 
Well, yes, I would take a carriage. So up I clambered and sat down upon what in the darkness I suppose was a seat. But what gave such a powerful evidence of animation and howls and attempts at assault and battery as to prove its right to be called a boy. And sure and lady didn't mean to hurt you, Jimmy, expostulated something that turned out to be the boy's mother. Whereupon a baby and a small sister of the small boy sent forth their voices in unison with that of their extinguished brother. Driver, let me get out, I said pathetically. Certainly, ma'am. But where will you go to? There ain't no other carriage left. True, and I remained. When I was asked where I wanted to stop, I really did not know. Was there a hotel? Yes. Was there more than one hotel? No, said the driver. I breathed more freely and said I would go to the hotel. The driver evidently entertained a poor opinion of my mental capacity, for he mumbled to himself that people who didn't know where there was a going had enough sense to stay at home and deposited me at the hotel with a caution against pickpockets. This was sufficiently humiliating, yet there were lower depths entering the parlor. I found it monopolized by a young lady in green silk and red buttons, and a pink young man with his hair parted in the middle, and his shirt bosom resplendent with brilliance of the last water. They were at the piano singing, days of abstinence, in a manner calculated to depress the most buoyant spirits. So I rang the bell, and the green young lady and pink young man began on their second verse. No answer. Again I rang the bell, and the songsters began on the third verse. Still no answer. Once more I rang the bell, and the green young lady and pink young man piped up the touching lay of No One to Love. Little cared those, two souls with but a single thought, two hearts that beat as one. For the third heart and soul, victim of misplaced confidence, ring. I rang that bell until I ached to be a man for one brief moment. Does a man ever endure such torture? No. He puts on his hat, walks into the hotel office, gives somebody a piece of his mind, and demands the satisfaction of a gentleman. But a woman can go to no office. She must remain upstairs and cultivate patience on hunger and thirst and a general mortification of their senses. Victory or destruction to the bell, I said at last, and pulled a rope with the desperation of a maniac. Did you ring? asked a mild clerk, entering the tips of his toes as if there were not enough of him to warrant so an extravagant expenditure as to use the whole soul. Did I ring? I, who had been doing nothing else for half an hour, I, who had but forty-five minutes in which to eat my supper and dress for the lecture, presenting my card, I desired the mild clerk to show me to my room. The mild clerk was exceedingly sorry, but the committee had left no order, and there was not a vacant room in the house. What am I to do? I asked in agony of spirit. I must have a room. Now, must is an overpowering word. Only say must with all the emphasis of which it is capable, and longings are likely to be realized. 
Well, the mild clerk didn't know, but as how he might turn out and let me have his room. Oh, that blessed man! Had I been Pope, he should have been canonized on the spot. Following up several flights of stairs, lighted by a kerosene lamp that perfumed the air as only kerosene can, I was at last ushered into a room where sat a young girl knitting. She seemed to be no more astonished at my appearance than were the chairs in the table, merely remarking when we were left alone, That's my father. I suppose you won't have any objection to my staying here as long as I please. How could I? To the rightful proprietor of that room. I smiled feebly, and the damsel pursued her knitting with her fingers and me with her eyes until everything in the room seemed to turn into eyes. That frightful thought came over me that perhaps my companion was our own correspondent from the daily slasher. A thought that sent my supper down the wrong way, deprived me of my appetite, and made me thankful that my back hair did not come off. The damsel sat and sat, knitted and knitted, until she had superintended every preparation, and then, like an Arab, silently stole away. What next? Why? The committee called for me at the appointed hour seemed blandly ignorant of the fact that they had not done their whole duty to a woman, and maintained that walking was much better than driving. Huh. Oh, the wind blew, dust sought shelter within the recesses of eyes and ears and nose. But patient Griselda could not have behaved better than I. In fact, a woman who lectures more enduring quietly what a singer or actress would stoutly protest against for the reason that lecturing brings down upon her the taunt of being strong-minded. And any assertion of rights or exhibition of temper is sure to be misconstrued into violent hatred of men and an insane desire to be President of the United States. This can hardly be called logic, but it is truth. Logic is an unknown quantity in the ordinary public estimation of women lecturers. Inwardly cross and outwardly cold, I delivered my lecture, and went back to that much populated room, thinking that at least I should obtain a few hours' sleep before starting off at five o'clock in the morning. A nice hour to sing about, but a horrible one at which to get up. I approached the bed, shade of that virtue which is next to godliness. The linen was, was, yes, it was second-hand, and calmly reposing on a pillow of doubtful color. I sought for a bell. Alas, there was none. Should I scream? No. That might bring out the fire engines. Should I go in search of the housekeeper? How to find her at that hour of the night? No. Rather than wander about a strange house in a strange place, I would sit up. Of course, there was a rocking chair. In that I took refuge and there I sat with a quaint old-fashioned clock for company, with such stout lungs as to render sleep an impossibility. No fairy godmother came in at the keyhole to transform my chair into a coach and that pocket of clock into a handy maiden. No ghost beguiled the weary hours. Eleven, twelve, one, two, three, four. As the clock struck this last hour, a porter pounded on the door. 
and not long after I was being driven through the cold, dark morning to a railroad station. My driver was he of the previous day, and a very nice fellow he turned out to be. I didn't know it was you yesterday, you see, miss, or I wouldn't have said nothing about pit-pockets. You don't look like a, a lecturer, you see, and that's what the matter. Indeed, and how ought a lecturer look? Well, I don't exactly know, but I always supposed they didn't look like you. I reckon you didn't enjoy staying around here in the dark, so I'll just wait here till the train comes, and there that good creature remained until the belated train snatched me up and whisked me off to the city. When the express agent passed through the car to take my baggage checks, it was as good as a play to see the different ways in which people woke up. Some turned over and wouldn't wake up at all. Others sat bolt upright and blinked. Some were very cross, and wondered why they could not be left alone. Others again rubbed their eyes, scratched their heads, and said, All right, and would have gone to sleep again had not the agent shaken them into consciousness. Where did you go? asked the agent of a quiet old gentleman, sitting before me, who had previously given up his checks. Yes, exactly, that's my name, replied the old gentleman. Where did you go? asked the agent in somewhat louder tone. Exactly, I told you so. The old gentleman put a pocket handkerchief over his face as a preliminary to sleep. Well, I never, explained the agent, who returned to the charge. I asked you where you want to go. Precisely, that's my name. Confound your name, muttered the agent. You're either deaf or insane, and I guess you're deaf. So putting his mouth to the old gentleman's ear, he shouted, Where do you want to go? Oh, really? The blank house was the mild answer to the question that so startled everybody as to cause one man to jump up and cry, Fire! Very much to the gratification of his fellow passengers. There's nothing more pleasing to human beings than to see someone else make himself ridiculous. And the amusement extracted from the contemplation of that carload of men and women almost compensated me for the previous experience. I have since traveled in the far west, but have never looked upon the counterpart of that New England hotel. End of A Night in a Rocking Chair Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan